Welcome to Actual People, a podcast hosted by me, Chauncey Zulkin, dedicated to meaningful conversations about the evolving landscape of our lives and the power of our own creativity and imagination to make magic. Hi there. Welcome to this week's episode of Actual People. This one is a precursor to an interview next week that dissects the pressures, conformity, and odd delights of the beauty industry. With my guest who wrote a book on the topic from the lens of K-beauty, that author is NPR host Elise Hu, and that book is flawless. And while Elise looks forward in her book, I'm going to use this episode to look backwards at my own relationship with what she calls lookism, which is the pressure of beauty standards or judging people by beauty. And particularly, I'm going to look at my 80s Miami childhood, the next 20 years living mostly in New York, and now passing the 50-year mark of my life as a mom, where intensive beauty regimes don't exactly get top billing, because most of what I do involves sitting at a desk and attending play dates. Actually, 50% of the times I do put in that extra effort in how I look is when I'm about to go on a Zoom call and I want to look presentable for a meeting. The occasions for which we really engage in beauty in this day and age have changed a lot. And I will get into that later. But after reading Flawless, I got really curious about my own relationship to beauty. And I went back and I looked at excerpts from my unpublished but very much wants to be published novel Rock Underwater, which is part memoir and part magical realism. I wanted to look at the bits about the aesthetics of my childhood. My parents got divorced in 1979, which was a pivotal year in Miami, and also a year where my dad started to date young models. Definitely did a little of that probably before the ink was dry, but anyway, I remember he threw one of his girlfriends a 21st birthday party, and this was a woman who looked a lot like 90s supermodel Claudia Schiffer. She wore an electric blue skin-tight leather top and miniskirt she bought from a store called North Beach Leather, which was popular at the time. I found a throwback to North Beach Leather, and there's a picture of Christy Turlington. So I guess because of Christy Turlington, it was a really legit brand. Very well-made, very tight leather. So just to get a sense of my dad, if you don't know by now from previous episodes, my dad was a nice Jewish boy, straight-A student, who rejected a full ride to Duke University in order to go to Tulane because it was more fun. I'm glad he did because that's where he met my mother and I wouldn't exist if he had made that other choice. But it does say a lot about him. He was witty, generous with his friends, and extremely likable. At the time, newly freed from his marriage, he was really in the mix. Models, bankers, party people, Hollywood elite, they all touched his life in some way It was sort of inexplicable. He wasn't a producer or a media mogul, but he had some tangential relationship to quite a few of those people. He wasn't a drug dealer either, if that's what you're thinking. He had a ceiling fan company. And it was a different time. I don't know how those kinds of things came about. But he threw parties in Miami and in Aspen. He had a mystique to him. I will talk about him a lot because I'm obviously somewhat obsessed with my father. He was a really interesting man and he was the kind of man that doesn't really exist anymore for better and for worse. But enough about my dad. 1980 was the year of the Mariel boat lift, the mass immigration of Cubans that arrived on Miami shores, which was the inspiration for Scarface. 
when my father left my mother, he moved into a hotel called the Mutiny for a few months, which I just read was actually in the movie Scarface and played a major role during decadent 80s Miami, which makes perfect sense. I did not know that before working on this episode. The mutiny has now been renovated to suit the sterile tastes of today's wealthy, and I've been back only once since the early 80s. But back then, my father's room was burgundy and gray with black lacquer accents. I write in my book when shiny black meets recessed lighting, dust, and rhinestones, and how it brings to mind the Michael Jackson Rock With You video. Before this, my parents had been free to be, you and me, Peter, Paul, and Mary loving hippies. We lived in a small one-story house in Coconut Grove, which is an enclave of Miami, with lots of folksy musical instruments and shag carpeting, a coffee table book of Annie Leibovitz photographs, indigenous art. I went to a Montessori school. We ate bulgur wheat casseroles, but almost from one day to the next, there was a complete scene change. I was competing for my dad's attention with these young models. I was eight and nine years old and my older sister was off roller skating on the pier with her friend who lived in a houseboat. It was really just me trying to get my father's attention. So one day I found in my dad's house a woman's shoe. Earlier that day I'd had an upsetting exchange with this woman which I will not recount here because I have kids and because well I want to publish this book at some point but here's what happened with the shoe. I found her silver leather stiletto tucked into the couch trash compactors were new back then. I haven't even seen a house with a trash compactor in years. Maybe they all have them and I don't know it, but I certainly don't have one where you, whatever you put in there, you push a button and it pushes everything down. I put the shoe in the trash. The blade started to churn and I could hear the snap of wood and the strain of leather rending within its metal jaws. And when I opened the garbage, the shoe was badly mangled, but intact. That says a lot about what these symbols of beauty and fashion meant to me and the kind of threat that they posed. It plays a pretty strong part of my relationship with beauty and fashion. In an earlier episode, I talk about this gold chainmail dress I found in the closet. Another artifact would be the book Hollywood Wives. It was popular at the time and someone left it in my father's house. Wikipedia describes the book this way. Elaine is a Detroit girl turned Hollywood hostess, desperate to stay at the top while her marriage to former screen sex symbol Ross Conti crumbles beneath her. I was fascinated by all the lurid details of these desperate, fame-hungry, beautiful women. Women were always depicted as these sort of desperate vixens that would do anything to keep their man happy and really didn't have much agency without the men in their lives. Meanwhile, my mom's bookshelves were full of Maya Angelou, Joan Didion, and Susan Sontag. My mom wore quote-unquote natural makeup. The bronzer was a little on the heavy side. She dressed in Banana Republic and L.L. Bean. Her makeup was that classic Lancome and Clinique. She wore Elizabeth Arden 8-Hour Cream, which was not really a cream, but more like a balm, like Vaseline, on her lips. She wore beige lip gloss that matched her car, which was a 450 SL Mercedes. By 1983, she had a frosted shag haircut and wore wraparound sunglasses with tiny rivets. I looked them up online, and I think they were made by Porsche. I was piecing the adult world together through these disparate, shifting items that were appearing in my life. I was trying to make sense of my world through the artifacts of beauty and fashion. 
through my dad's girlfriends and his second wife, I learned how to do a smoky eye. I learned that you should put oil on your body right out of the shower while your skin is wet to lock in that moisture. I memorized the scent of sheer pink lip gloss that melted in the sun. And later, as a grown-up who had just moved to New York, I wanted a part-time job. A friend of my father's owned a bar on the Upper East Side called O-Bar, which was a hot spot for the Upper East Side crowd. And I was definitely a downtown girl, did not like the Upper East Side. But I kind of wanted the job. Or really, I wanted to know if I was pretty enough to have the job. Because they hired very tall, beautiful hostesses. And that was part of its allure. When I asked the owner if I could work there, just to see what he would say, he said, no, you definitely could not work here because you would slap a guy if you tried to grab your ass. And that goes with the territory of working here. He was right. I definitely would have slapped the guy. But the truth is, that made me feel left out. Why couldn't I be more docile? I was smart and I was pretty, but I wasn't five foot, nine inches, wide set features pretty. I went in and out of trying to be that or flagellating myself for not being that. A friend of mine commented that I don't make the pretty girl face, meaning that surprised blank look that models and female pop singers use uniformly on their album covers, including Mariah Carey, Janet Jackson, Christina Aguilera, Ariana Grande later. These expressions gave way to more defiant expressions. A good example of this is looking at J-Lo's album cover for On The Six, her first album, where she's coyly curled on the couch, ready to be taken, but not the taker. To the next album, which is a macro shot of her looking right into the camera, wearing a stern, defiant expression. You know, I wanted to be a fashion designer for as long as I can remember. And I wanted to define myself against those women who stood in the shadows of men. Maybe if I intellectualize it, I wanted to be a fashion designer so I could control the image message instead of being controlled by image messages. I only stopped pursuing my dream of becoming a fashion designer when I got a little older and I realized I didn't actually want to sew and I preferred to write. One big realization that I came to eventually in my life is that one should actually do things they like waking up and doing and not pursue things that they can only think about doing in the abstract. I loved couture and beautifully made things and I adored street style and the cultural significance of what people wore and how they communicated with their clothing. So my writing life started in talking about those things. When I graduated from college, I got a job at Seventeen Magazine and I cut out these pictures that I found in the New York Post of Jocelyn Wildenstein and I put them on my cubicle. Now, I'm not sure if I did that as a joke or as a big like F you to the beauty norms of fashion magazines. But either way, Jocelyn Wildenstein fascinated me. My own grandmother was, to me, the ultimate beauty and fashion icon. All of her adult life, she hosted parties and she loved to get dressed up for parties. She was very glamorous. She clearly influenced my father's social. She said, I will never go gray. She wore her hair very long and a one braid down the side. She cared very much about how she looked. It wasn't that she wasn't vain. She was extremely vain and possibly slightly narcissistic. One thing she'd always say, I'm not a joiner. So she wasn't a joiner and she didn't join all the people around her that were having plastic surgery. 
I love makeup and I love the way it smells. I love the colors, the shimmer, the glitter, the various textures and consistencies like matte or glossy, powders that turn into creams, creams that turn into powders, eyeliners that go on like oil pastels and vibrant colors, like a lot of pigment. It's celebratory. It's 100% playful and it's increasingly so. I find makeup frankly more honest than skincare. Talk to a dermatologist and they'll take all the perfumed air out of skincare mythology. There's no evidence that skincare has any real impact beyond cleaning and moisturizing and protecting your skin against the sun, a little bit of Retin-A, unless you have a severe problem. My skin routine consists of using black soap with a face brush. I hop from cream to cream. I don't like any of them all that much. At night, I spray my face with an ionized rose water. I'm not really sure exactly what that does. And I apply a face oil, a fancy one my friend gave me that I have had twice now. It smells like jasmine. Or I just find one at TJ Maxx. For me, it's just clean, moisturized skin, and that's all that matters. It's really disappointingly simple. People want to spend money. They want to pamper and primp, and I'm no exception. It's very meditative to take care of yourself and focus on yourself. Especially as a mother and a single mother, it would be easy for me to do nothing but the bare minimum. But I do because it gives me a moment to matter to myself as a physical being in the world apart from my children. I love watching the makeup tutorials. They are mesmerizing and not in small part due to the sheer volume of product that they put on their face and somehow walk away not looking like a garish clown, which is what I would look like if I put on one eighth of the amount influencers put on their face. Makeup just doesn't stay on my skin. I put something on and it's gone within an hour. Watch makeup tutorials. They pour makeup on their skin. It's like a drip painting. They apply swaths of bronzer, cups of powder under their eyes, and they might do their full eye makeup before they even do their foundation, but somehow it still turns out amazing. It's kabuki, it's theater, and it's fun. On me, even the slightest bit of too much eye makeup and I look like Grey Gardens. Even the makeup I put on for my wedding, I ended up wiping it off and reapplying my usual makeup because I looked like the cover of a Clairol hair dye bottle. I had makeup done for the photo shoot I did for this podcast and the woman almost refused to put on any eye makeup she she's like okay I'm done I was like well what about my eyes you know I she said you don't really need that much I have a face that's not blank slaty enough I wish that it would all come together and I would find a way to look really dressed up in makeup just once before my face becomes a puddle of wrinkles I have good skin even after all the pinching I did in adolescence and smoking cigarettes. Somehow I have no scars and my skin's pretty good. But I have circles under my eyes. My jawline is the most startling change in the last couple years. It looks like skin that was once sewn tight. The stitching has come loose here and there. I really hate it. But putting a facelift ahead of my kid's college or an epic year abroad is unconscionable. I still like to have my hair colored and I work out at least four days a week, five or six, but four minimum. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I parent. That's what I do. I parent. And in parenting, there are pizzas and cookies. So I can't be quote unquote my ideal weight without considerable, I'd say unreasonable and unprioritizable sacrifice. Over time, as we become more inclusive, paradoxically, we have become more extreme in our beauty standards. 
more extreme fillers, more extreme surgery. I was watching Love is Blind last night, and everybody in that show had copious amounts of fillers. You'll learn more about the context of this and its evolution in next week's interview. But at the same time, go into any American big box store or the grocery store, the mall, or even an airplane for that matter, and you'll see teenagers in PJs and literal slippers on their feet. People don't dress up. Life on the streets is your dress rehearsal. And the real performance goes on in that tiny screen that you hold in your hand. I have a conflicted relationship with lookism. I admit to having lookist tendencies because it was such a part of the fabric of my childhood. I've definitely conflated physical beauty with merit or admired people, male or female, based on the symmetry of their features and physical beauty. I come from a world of maximalism but I've pruned myself into a kind of minimalism. Only my favorite books are on the shelves. Only my favorite bowls are in the cupboard. There's nothing beyond the essential. My real happy place is a cabin in the woods by a lake, but perhaps in that cabin on the lake, I'd be wearing a glittering gown. And under that glittering gown, I'd still be wearing jeans. I feel like the rituals of beauty are like what they say about technology. It can be used for either good or evil, and there needs to be balance. I have swung from attributing morality and goodness to not caring about beauty, to wanting to not let it go, because it feels like a kind of self-denial to let it go. It's like not celebrating your own birthday. Reading Flawless, I instinctively found myself running to Sephora to replenish my makeup with a few new toys. And I know doing so was an important act of self-love, even if it triggered questions of what beauty means to me now, beyond the beauty of youth. We are force-fed since birth. In the search for self-definition and evolution, I consider this to be a good thing, like meeting yourself all over again. I think it's important that we continue to do that and continue to celebrate our own beauty the way my grandmother did throughout the course of our lives. Stay tuned for our next episode with Elise Hu, where she talks about her book, Flawless. You've been listening to Actual People. This show is written, directed, and executive produced by me, your host, Chauncey Zalkin. Show sound designed by Eric Aaron. Click on the link below to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And don't forget to leave a review. I'll be sharing my favorites. You can find our socials and all links to deeper dives into these topics at chaunceyzalkin.com and on my substack at chaunceyzalkin.substack.com. Actual People is available wherever you get your podcasts.